You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Today's guest is the CEO of one of Lloyd's standout performers of the past two decades. Beasley is a blue-chip Lloyd's business that has consistently maintained top quartile performance while growing fast and continuing to innovate. Because of this, any time in the presence of Andrew Horton is time well spent. In this episode, we talk about the hardening market, the world that awaits the class of 2020, Lloyd's reforms, including syndicate in a box, lead follow, and the use of automation to remove costs from the syndicated market. We also discuss the prospect of the big three brokers becoming the big two, Andrew's almost total aversion to bold transformational M&A, except when it doesn't involve Beasley, and of course, COVID-19 and how long a tail it is likely to have. It's a great way of getting a feel for what is front of mind at one of the specialty insurance and reinsurance world's top outfits. Now, today's episode is very kindly supported by Claims Direct Access and Bolton Associates. There are links to their websites in the podcast notes, so do go and check them out. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyds since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyds line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. Andrew, would you say we're in a hard market? And if we are, where are the best opportunities to be found? Okay, Mark, it's, it's an interesting question to me because I haven't been in insurance that long and everybody talks about the last hard market being around the early 2000s. And of course, I joined the insurance industry in 2003. So as I understand it, a hard market is where rates are going up across almost every line of business. And what we are seeing is definitely a situation where rates are going up across most lines of business. So we're definitely seeing hardening in the marketplace. The challenge, I think, with this hard market compared with others, which I haven't, I've only sort of looked back in history and seen what happened, is we're also heading for a recession if we're not already in it. So it's going to be an unusual hard or hardening market where we've also got a recession. And generally, several of our insureds are going to be in financial distress. And they're going to be looking for how to reduce the premiums they pay while the insurers want to raise rates. And I think the reason the insurers need better prices is underwriting profits have been low for several years. So we need to actually increase the rating we're getting for exposure. But clients may be cutting back on the amount of exposure they actually want. The best opportunities, I think, to us at this point in time are looking at sort of the traditional Lloyd's classes of marine and property, where capacity is withdrawn from several of those lines, not only at Lloyd's, but elsewhere. And also the DNO, which has been widely spoken about how DNO rates have got to go up 50 to 100%. But, but let's look at DNO over the past few years. It's been going down an enormous amount over the past five or 10 years. 
So you're not really predicting a bonanza. Do you, do you think we're going to end up with a sort of uh, score draw where you get better <laughs> pricing on what's coming in, but the volume, your actual headline GWP is probably not going to go up too much? I think that's going to be the case for the total of the industry. Of course, when I look parochially at Beasley, our aim is to win business against some of our competitors and therefore perform well during this time of a hardening market and the challenges the industry is seeing, which I'm sure we may talk about later on, and therefore come out with a good reputation and win business from competitors in 2021. So our expectation is to grow top line, but I think it is going to be a challenge as we enter recession. And some lines of business are very recession prone. So not everything will be positive and we need to take evasive action on lines that are more recession prone. So you mentioned about DNO there. Do you think that is that the sort of star class, but partly is it really a star class because for one, it had been such a soft market for such a long time before. And of course, you're mentioning about recession. Do you think DNO is going to be affected by recessions as shareholders become unhappy with perhaps with boards of directors that haven't done so well? I think DNO is an interesting one, Mark, because if we look at the last recession, we expected to get more DNO claims post the financial crisis in 08 and actually found we didn't. And actually, 9, 10, 11 were relatively good for DNO, and the loss ratio was lower than it had been prior to that. So it's really hard to tell because most people do think DNO is recession prone, but this last one proved that it wasn't. The issue, as you say, is DNO rates have been going down over a long period of time, quite a lot, certainly in the excess layers. And Beasley, as a company, has generally been underweight DNO, waiting for the opportunity of trying to grow it. And we recruited Bethany Greenwood last year, and her main aim on the DNO side was to grow the account. And we think this may be an opportunity to do it replacing some carriers who are withdrawing capacity, and that's the reason rates are going up. We've also got to keep an eye on whether the rate increase is going to stay ahead of claims inflation, because claims inflation in DNO last year, previous year, was quite extreme. Well, the thing about hard markets is usually there's an element of a shortage of capital. We don't seem to be in an era that is short of capital, given what central banks have been doing in reaction to COVID-19. So do you think, is there something else at play? Is Is this more a market that is driven by fear than a shortage of capital? Mark, I think it's driven by the fact that the underwriting performance from 2017, 18, 19, 20 for the industry in total is not that great. And now we have another year, 2020, the underwriting performance isn't, that good, isn't going to be that great because of the COVID-19 claims and the worry about recession. And also we have uncertainty regarding investment returns. And therefore, on the back of that, plus rates having gone down for five to 10 years across a number of classes, rates need to go up. So I think it's just not great underwriting performance by the industry that's driving it. There hasn't been a lot of capital withdrawn, but there hasn't been a lot of capital generated because we haven't been that profitable. We're talking about uh, generating capital. Obviously, you went to the markets yourselves very recently with an equity raise. So what was the real motive behind that? Was it a defensive one to shore yourself up against uh, weird things, difficult things that may be happening? Or was it more about going on the offensive and making the most of the hard market, making sure you've got the capital to do that? So it was mainly the latter. Of course, it also helps in the former that we have a stronger balance sheet. So we mainly saw the opportunities, as I mentioned, the DNO Property Marine and one or two other lines of business. And we wanted to ensure we had enough capital for that. Now, of course, it also has a defensive element that the balance sheet is stronger. And it also replaces the profits we thought we were going to make in 2020. Because when we started the year, we had an expectation of a certain level of profitability. And of course, during the year, we've announced $170 million of COVID-19 claims at this point in time. And we have an uncertain investment outlook. And it's likely our investment income won't be as high. So to some extent, the capital replaces that profit. So it would have been there to grow in 2021. But then we've raised more capital than that to add firepower to further growth opportunities next year. Obviously, you haven't been the only one out there raising. We've got a class of 2020 emerging. 
what sort of opportunity is going to be available to that class of 2020, these new market entrants? And do you think it's going to be a long-lived opportunity for them? I think that's a good question, Mark. I would say at the moment, the total amount of capital raised isn't that great when you compare it to the total capital of the industry. So we haven't seen major, major startups. So I'm not sure it's going to make that much difference to the total insurance market at this point. There's definitely going to be opportunities out there. As I've talked about rising rates in a number of lines, but there are also going to be some challenges out there. So there are some lines which companies need to try to avoid. But overall, the insurance pie isn't going to grow that much, I don't believe, with the recession looming. And therefore, they're going to have to win business from others. And it's going to be a question of how do they win business from others with this extra capital. Okay, so you worry that they might come in and blunt the edge of uh, some of the price increases that have to be competitive? Well, well, Mark, the market sort of turns on a pin almost, doesn't it, at the time? So you're sitting there thinking that the rates are going up, keeping an eye on our clients and trying to support them as much as possible. And all of a sudden, you find rates have stopped going up and they start coming down. So the industry changes quite quickly and we may see that. It doesn't look as though we're going to see that for the foreseeable future, mainly as I say, because the total amount of capital raised isn't that great. And we have seen capacity being withdrawn from a number of lines. We had previous classes would be in 1993, 2001 and 2005. And during that time, the consensus would have been that London and Lloyd's really lost out on that new capital formation. It was, these were more the classes of Bermuda. Do you think 2020 could be different? Well, I think so far, because if you look at the capital raises, there've obviously been the three public companies in the UK all raising capital. And we've heard of some of the privately owned companies based in the UK raising capital. So there seems to be quite a lot of capital being raised in the UK compared with elsewhere. We haven't heard of much capital being raised elsewhere so far, Mark. So I'm hoping on the back of that, the aim of the UK-based companies not to lose out against competition. I certainly don't feel that BZ is going to lose out against other overseas companies having raised our capital this year. Is it fruit of any of the reforms that obviously you spent, you've done your stint two years at the chair of the London Market Group, a huge amount of reform and a huge amount of work going on in London over the last five years. Could this be proof that um, some of that work is bearing fruit? Mark, of course, having chaired it for two years, I've got to say, yes, of course, it's that bearing fruit of the uh, London Market Group. I think the London Market Group, I was very honoured to chair it for two years. And we've got some very passionate people on the London Market Group with an excellent CEO in Claire Lebec. And I think the London Market Group is trying to raise the profile of London, ensuring London as an insurance market stays very strong compared with our competitors. And the last London Matters survey coming out, I think, said that. We're also very self-critical in London, and we always feel we can do better but we're definitely holding our own against international competition in some areas growing. And I think London Market Group under Matthews Moore's chairmanship can now take that on to the next level and is looking at what to focus on for the next couple of years. COVID-19, obviously, you run a public company. You have to be put in the spotlight by, your, by the analysts and by the investors, and they, they ask you straight away to come up with a number. And Lloyd's, the Lloyd's Market has, to its credit, has gone through that exercise as well, come up with a big number. Do you think that estimate feels like a good one at this stage? It's hard to say what a good, a good number is. I think what it is, Mark, is a consistent number. So I think Lloyd's has done a good job at explaining how we should all determine our numbers. So I think Lloyd's should feel comfortable it's been done consistently by each of the operators at Lloyd's. Is it a good number? I think it seems like a reasonable number in the grand scheme of the market losses that people are banding around. Of course, they're quite broad at this point in time. It's missing an element for liabilities including our own number. We put out $170 million and and explained that it was easy-ish to 
work out what the event cancellation is at this point because we know what events have been cancelled and it was easiest to do our short tail lines of property and marine but it's quite hard to determine what the liability claims are going to be and they're going to come out over the next year or two or three and we haven't been able to estimate those yet and it's going to be very difficult to differentiate what is a COVID-19 related liability claim and what is a recession related liability claim caused by COVID-19 happening. So it's much harder, I think, on the liability side to determine what the ultimate claims are going to be, because we actually need to see some of them come in and then model it from what we're actually seeing against our total portfolios. So it wouldn't surprise me at some point in the future, we start getting an idea of what the liability claims are on top of the shorter tail lines. The key question in that is, I mean, how long a tail do you think COVID-19 is going to have? We, we even know that, of course, even short tail classes have proven to be longer tail than we thought in the past, particularly with, uh, with catastrophes and other things. How long a tail do you think we're dealing with here? It's a challenge because if you look at the event cancellation, which has had sort of the highest profile, I guess, in and is relatively straightforward to calculate because you know what events you've got. If we get a second wave or a third wave, then there are going to be more events going to be cancelled. So in theory, you could have a whole year's events being cancelled by COVID-19. And then that would be it, because after that, people are excluding COVID-19 for their renewal policies. So for event cancellation, we have potentially further events. We've estimated events up to September, so it's covering most of our summer events. If it continues into the winter, there are fewer winter events, but there will be further events being cancelled. I guess on the business interruption, which is the second line people talk about a lot, the longer businesses are out of business, the higher the business interruption losses can be. But generally, that tends to be sublimited. And therefore, there's a limit to how much it could grow. So there is a tail to the shorter tail lines. Oh, and then there's a debate about how much reinsurers are going to pick up on the back of how much the insurers pay out. And that one hasn't been concluded really yet. The liability is going to take a while. There is the opportunity to underwrite away from the liability events. So if you take evasive action now, on certain liability lines and lower your book, by the time a claim comes, you may no longer be at risk. And that's what we're looking at is what are the lines that are likely more recession prone and determining what evasive action we should take. Having learned from the last financial crisis, where we also took evasive action, but probably not as much as we should have taken. Before we get to the next question, I'm here with Zoe Bolton, the founder of Actuarial Headhunters, Bolton Associates, who have kindly supported this podcast. Zoe, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about Bolton Associates and what you can do for our listeners? Hi, Mark. Thanks for having us. We're delighted to be supporting you and the Voice of Insurance. Bolton Associates recruits actuaries and analysts specifically into the general insurance market. We do not deviate from that. We work with actuaries across the industry, be they chief actuaries, CROs, CFOs, pricing, reserve and capital modelling, and the juniors looking to break into the market. This is what we do. If you know an actuary, we've probably spoken to them. We've all done this for rather a long time. Bolton Associates collectively has over 100 years of experience of this. And with the opportunities now in the MGA sector, InsureTech, data science and the startups, we've never been busier. If you're looking to expand or establish your actuarial and analytics offering, you should be talking to us. At Bolton Associates, we aim to be part of the market and friends to it so we can offer our clients a real-time view of the actuarial landscape. Personally, being that advisor, startup, environment, etc. is just the best part of my job and the network is really working for that. As I said, we're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So any actuaries, hi again, or companies looking for one, do get in touch. We're all working remotely as everybody is. The market is busier than ever and fingers crossed, let's hope we can all get back to EC3 sometime soon. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. And let's get back to the podcast. You mentioned about uh, shorter tail, um, things like business interruption all over the world. And, and also, and it was particularly we're sitting here in the UK, we've got the FCA, the conduct regulator has taken the industry to court effectively over some of the more ambiguous wordings to, to try and break a logjam and to get a ruling on some of these wordings. 
do you think this is really an indictment or a validation of of the way the insurance industry has been working? Well, this is a sort of a challenging topic for Beasley because we don't write much business interruption in the UK. We do write some, but not a lot of business interruption. Wording should always be clear and therefore clients should always know what they're buying. And this is always a challenge for the industry when there's a relatively major pushback of was the wording clear or not. And that is in no one's interest from the insurer to the broker to the insured. And we shouldn't be in that position. Now, the counter to that is the world has never gone through a COVID-19 complete lockdown ever before. So this is a new event, isn't it? And therefore, can wordings be clear on every foreseeable event? unforeseeable event, not every foreseeable event, because nobody foresaw this. So that's always going to be a challenge. We need to learn from it and ensure going forwards, events like this are clearly in the wording or not in the wording. And I think the industry over the years has done a much better job at making wording clearer. So there are fewer of these type of events where there is concern about does the wording say that it should pay out or not pay out. So ideally, it would have been better if it just these things had an exclusion and then it would have been very clear or, or had a preamble that said, we really don't intend to cover pandemics. We, you know, we want to cover exactly. some communicable diseases, but, uh, but not, uh, not pandemics. Yeah, I think nobody, nobody expected. I mean, pandemics have been debated with insurers for a long period of time. And we have a pandemic realistic disaster scenario, but we never imagined a pandemic which shut down the planet. I mean, we had pandemic views that would shut down various parts of the UK or various parts of somewhere else, but not the whole planet. Big crises like this tend to be uh, historically, you know, your, your Lloyd's business. And it's, they've usually been moments at which Lloyd's has been able to stand up and really differentiate itself and often emerge with an enhanced reputation. You know, we go right back to the, the fables of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and other things, for example. So this is one of those moments in insurance history. So do you think Lloyd's is going to emerge from COVID-19 with its reputation enhanced or, or, or even diminished? I'm hoping enhanced, obviously, Mark. We obviously have the claims issue we've just talked about, and I think we're doing the right things, and the FCA will come to a conclusion on that, and we'll see how that plays out. I think what Lloyd's management are doing is looking at how the market can improve on the back of what's happened over the past three months. So I'm hoping that we end up with a more efficient market, and a market that's easier to do business with going forwards, potentially at lower cost, ideally at lower cost, for which the client ultimately benefits. And it's interesting to me because one of the things many of my lawyers underwriters have said prior to the last three months is that they could not operate without face-to-face trading and we need to be on the floor of Lloyd's every day. And we've obviously just proven for three months we can do no face-to-face trading and not be on the floor of Lloyd's and business is generally holding up. This does not mean that all business is more efficient or that every decision is better than it would have been if we had face-to-face trading because there are many areas in my view where the exposure is more complex or the claim is more complex, that getting people in a room and debating it would have been better than doing everything either on WebEx, Zoom or Teams or over email or any other form of virtual communication. So we've definitely lost something, but I think we've gained more than we've lost in this environment. Lloyd's current plan is to be partially reopening the underwriting room in September. Do you think we need the underwriting room? Everybody who trades in Lloyd's has a nice office within three or 400 yards of it. So when you need face-to-face, we can all do face-to-face probably privately away from other prying eyes uh, when you need to do these difficult negotiations. But most of the time, do you think we don't need it? I mean, do you think we should bother going back to Lloyd's, back to the trading floor? I think it is useful for the market to have a space which everybody can come to and you can do things more efficiently if you need to speak to more than one carrier. 
at one time. So there is an advantage of having that. I would imagine, Mark, that ultimately the room is smaller than it currently is and is differently laid out in some way. So there's more collaboration space. There's more space to talk to a number of carriers at the same time or very close to each other. So I could imagine it's going to be different from what it is at some point in the future. Of course, we need to work through what that transition is. I really hope that we don't bounce back to the way we were in January, February and March. And we do take this as an opportunity to think through how is it going to be different going forwards? You're right. I mean, I would say I would say a fair chunk of our business is actually trade in our office now and has been for a number of, of years. So it's not a new thing trading in the office instead of on the floor of Lloyd's. But for some complex risks where you do need quite a lot of capacity to build up, it is still a very efficient model for the brokers and the insureds. Great. Well, we'll talk about market efficiency, the future of Lloyd's and cutting costs. Obviously, you've been a pioneer of streamlined portfolio underwriting. And then we've since seen automatic underwriting initiatives being unveiled. And also you, you yourselves, again, been linked with one of those. So what do you think the Lloyd subscription market's going to look like in 10 years' time? Again, I, th- I really hope it's going to be more efficient. And there must be a better way of getting follow capacity than we currently do. It takes brokers and carriers a lot of time to get follow capacity. It's great to have an active lead market. So we've got many, a number of leaders all competing on the business. But once the lead line, a few of the following lines have been put down, there must be a more efficient way to fill up that capacity. And it just takes too long to do it. So I'm hoping the follow market is more automated as we go forwards. And that's certainly what the future of Lloyd's is looking at. And as you mentioned, we've done it with Syndicate 5623. We are just a follow market and we're trying to do it cheaper. And we've actually got our costs down to almost a third of what our costs are on our core business. Now, of course, we're leading a fair chunk and leading takes more time than following, but that's the aim. And we're committing to having costs close to a third of what our costs on our flagship syndicates are, which I think is a good thing to do. And we're also trying to work with the brokers to make it as easy as possible to place business into those facilities so that they can also place business into facilities at lower costs. And that must be a good thing because ultimately the client benefits from it. And we're not trying to take margins away from people. Ideally, brokers hold their margin, we hold our margin, and the client gets a cheaper deal. And I think it is possible to do that. Other things coming along, we've also heard of Brit, a technology solution, I think is also a positive thing because it's looking at how to follow more cheaply than the current structure of a very people-based follow market. Another part of London market reforms, uh, well, sorry, of Lloyd's reforms, would be the syndicate in a box initiative. Do you think that's going to be a catalyst to attract a new generation of underwriting talent at Lloyd's? Because obviously over the last generation, the costs of, or the perhaps barriers to entry have been higher and higher and higher. And you just wonder what, what an Andrew Beasley and Nick Furlong would have done. Do you think this is the sort of vehicle that an Andrew Beasley and Nick Furlong would, would have be making a beeline for today if they were starting out today? Mark, I think that's a great point. And I think exactly that's what Andrew and Nick would do if they were starting out today. So yes, I like the, I like the idea of syndicate in a box because it's trying to bring people with new ideas into the market. And Lloyd's are trying to come up with a fast track, lower cost, but still controlled way of doing it. And I like that combination. So we should be bringing more people in. We should be bringing people in with new ideas. The alternative is people are setting up MGAs. And I just think MGAs generally are adding more cost potentially to the industry where carriers have to find these MGAs to put capacity behind them. And you don't need to do that if you're a syndicate in a box. You're just going, you're directly plugged into the market. It's a more efficient way of doing it. It's new ideas. And it's definitely what Andrew and Nick would have done. Would you be actively incubating some of those syndicates in a box as BC? Do you think that would be a strategy that you would follow? Or do you think, would it mess up your culture as, as, as a company? 
obviously if we can come up with new ideas and put them into our core syndicates that would be the first place to put it if we were doing something somewhat different from what the core syndicates were doing then we would potentially put a syndicate in a box obviously 5623 it's not a syndicate in a box but the idea of portfolio underwriting wasn't something that the core syndicates were doing and therefore we set it alongside and kept it relatively separate from what the group was doing so i think if we came up with something like that mark then we would approach lloyds for syndicate in a box is it because you get that um, sort of defensive element of it that it is an isolated pocket an isolated sort of separate mini balance sheet that then it can't infect the rest of the business if it goes sour in some way? No, no I, don't, I don't think it's a, that sounds like a very negative thing about the syndicate <laughs> box. I'm not worrying about infecting it. It should it could be just done in a different way. The core syndicates operate in a certain way and I've had a fantastic track record over 35 years. 5623 operates in a different way. We were trying to get the costs at a lower basis and therefore to set it up separately. And if we came up with a new idea which was different from both of those, I think keeping it separately so you can see how it runs in a different way is a good thing to do. I wasn't thinking about it from a negative point of view that if it blows up, it blows up the core syndicates as well. I was just thinking it's a different style of doing business and it's quite hard. This is one of the challenges for companies. It's quite hard to do different styles within the style it's used to doing. And therefore a good thing to do is let it start in an independent place. We've had a lot of activity going on on the broking side on distribution. We've had in the last couple of years, we've had uh, the Marshall McLennan JLT deal, which is complete. And now we've got a prospective mega deal for the, the largest deal in insurance broking of all time with Aon and Willis. How are these deals going to affect your business in the long term? Well, we are definitely going to have more business from our top two brokers than we have had over the past few years. So it's definitely going to concentrate uh, business, which I must admit has some concern at executive management and board of we're going to be very dependent on two major distributors, which can be deemed a, a negative in some way. I suppose a negative in that if they all of a sudden don't like Beasley, we could see our business shrink. I try and see it in a more positive light than that, that if we've got great people and great service and great product and pay claims well, then these two fantastically organized large distributors will want to do more business with us. And that will be easier dealing with two than trying to do it with 200. So as long as we have product of value, then I don't feel too worried about having a reason out of business, a lot of business with two well-run broking houses, but it is concentrating it into, of course, they have now will have firepower analytics, which are potentially better than others. And we do want to try to help some of the others compete with them. So we're obviously interested in other distributions. It's this balance, Mark. want to do well with Marsh and Aon, obviously, and we do have great relationships with them. Um, I think we have good product and their clients like it, but we do want a healthy market and we do support other brokers. Beastie has a very, I'd say, focused distribution strategy, but we're trying to support all brokers. If they, if they like our product, we try to give equivalent good service on underwriting and claims to distributors who want to do business with us. But it's going to be an interesting balance. It's going to be interesting to see how it works out. Do you think the market's just, because it's a people business and brokers can move around and start their own businesses and we've got new challenges, do you think that we'd look in 10 years' time and, and see that it was just a blip and that things <laughs> reverted to the mean that the independents grew at the expense of the large two carriers and took up quite a lot of slack? Well, Mark, that's, this is a fascinating thing with distribution, isn't it? And I think it's the US stats, isn't it? There are almost always 20,000 brokers, and yet every month several are being bought by somebody else. The number doesn't actually reduce. So something's happening, which means there's a regeneration going on. And to some extent, similar in London, there is a regeneration going on. And I think that is a healthy thing to do. So it is interesting with all these stats of who's bought who over 
past two decades, but fundamentally the number of brokers hasn't reduced. Talking of M&A, we're in a differentiating point in the marketplace. Hard markets are the final reckoning point for underperformers, where they, they do become, they withdraw from classes of business and, and leave them for the stronger carriers to make the most of the rate rises. And also and sometimes they become impaired completely. But we've got a lot of public carriers right now, publicly quoted uh, insurance carriers, trading on really low valuations. Do you think you should follow the broker's lead now and go for some bold transformational M&A? Mark, you are definitely asking that question to the wrong person, as it is probably well known that I have no major interest, and BZ as a company has no major interest in bold transformational M&A. I'm always slightly concerned when you look at the stats of bold transformational M&A, it doesn't become that bold or that transformational. It does become transformational, but it becomes very challenging. And it's hard to do M&A. And ours has been an organic growth strategy for over three decades. And we like the bold transformational M&A taking place in the marketplace, because generally, people will join us organically on the back of the transformational M&A. And we've done relatively well out of carrier M&A over the past 10 to 20 years. So I do like it happening in the marketplace, mainly because it's a good Philip for our organic growth strategy. So I do hope there is some bold transformational M&A, but I think it's unlikely you'll see BZ being part of it. That's great. Thanks so much. We had a London Matters report. And of course, uh, I mentioned you you already did your stint for a couple of years as the chairman of the London Market Group, which would have commissioned that report. It seemed to be more positive, perhaps, than than its preceding um, versions. Uh, It seemed to be quite positive. London seemed to be holding its own. What do you think it tells us about the London market standing in the insurance world and what it needs to maintain and perhaps improve that standing? I think what the London Market Group has been doing since the first London Matters report has been excellent. So the initiatives they had underway have shown that if we focus on a few things and do them really well, we can maintain the standing of the London market. We're seeing at the moment, with the rating world changing, in my view, more business flow into London than we have seen for a number of years, which is great because people were concerned that when business flowed away, if that's the right term, it would never come back. And we're proving in this market that that is not the case. And I think it's some of the things the London market has been doing are promoting itself in the US and elsewhere in the world, and also with government, is helping that flow come back. I'm going to completely change the subject. We're talking about change. And this is a really interesting and and difficult point, I think, that the market has slowly come to confront. We've had the Me Too movement and and culture in terms of gender equality and other things in, in the London market. And then very recently, the Black Lives Matter movement have sent shockwaves through the world. And those shockwaves have reverberated through the London market. For instance, Lloyd's has just apologized for its historical role in the slave trade. So What do you think industry leaders should be doing now that all this has happened? Mark, I think the key to this is doing real things. And I say real things. I've been involved in diversity and inclusion initiatives in financial services for 20 or 30 years. And mainly, initially, people were talking about it, but didn't actually implement anything. So we need to have tangible things we're doing, which means we will become more diverse and be as inclusive as possible. And I think the market generally is doing more things now. So examples at BZ, if we look at BZ on the gender example, if we go back just two or three years ago, we only had one woman on our executive committee. About then, we took a view that we are going to ensure diverse slates when we're interviewing externally and looking for promotions internally. And now we have five women on our executive committee. And we have not positively discriminated. We just ensured that there is a similar number of women as men on all slates for interview candidates, both for externally bringing in and internal promotions. And it makes a massive difference. So now we have five role models for other women, and they see that as a positive thing. 
we're almost at 50-50 men, women within the company. And we're now getting that throughout the whole organization. Three women on the board, five on the executive committee, which is great. And we talk very openly about that. The challenge with other ones is that we're not very good at talking openly about it. It's very difficult to talk about race and ethnicity. And I really hope what's happened over the past few weeks, which is a very negative situation of what actually did happen, is going to make it easier for everybody to talk about this. But we need the same tangible action we've been putting into gender into other forms of diversity. And I don't think it's that difficult for us to do. I think at BZ we're already doing that, generally ahead of the curve on it. But now we're looking at can we do it better, more quickly, other things we're missing. But the key is giving opportunities to everybody and making sure everybody feels comfortable working in the insurance market and at Beasley. And I don't think those are too difficult things to achieve. And therefore, diversity and inclusion will make progress on the back of that. Andrew, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it must be very, very, very busy time for you right now. Uh, good luck with everything. And please come back and talk to us at some point in the future. Mark, I would be happy to. Thanks very much, Andrew. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you use to access this program. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, a big thanks to today's supporters who are Claims Direct Access and Bolton Associates. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>